I am always intrigued to hear how writers create story and character, and so often it's like they are vessels through which a character emerges, the author being a scribe in service to these characters who must tell their stories. I am Suzanne Lang, and I bring you a novel idea. Today we visit with two authors whose works couldn't be more different, yet they both probe the undeniable bonds of family, their powerful rootedness in the land, and the transformative essence of love. A little later, we'll talk with Meredith Hall on her story of grief and the atoning power of love in her novel, Beneficence. Meredith first came to the attention of readers with her best-selling memoir, Without a Map. So please look forward to my conversation with Meredith Hall, which we'll hear later in the show. Right now, we'll talk with Ruthie Marlinet, whose novel Agave Blues is set largely in Mexico, where the magic of agave and the generational roots of the land bring its heroine home and into her true self. Ruthie Marlinet is a novelist, poet and screenwriter with awards from the Women's International Film Festival and the Oaxaca Film Festival, among others. She is the author of Isabella's Island and Curse of the Ninth, and her most recent novel is Agave Blues, set amidst the agave fields and tequila industry of rural Mexico, and is inflected with a bit of the magic realism we find in the best of Latin American writing. Agave Blues takes us into the Mexican culture and one woman's struggle to stay removed from her Mexican childhood, only to find the spirits of family and the spirits of tequila calling her back. I spoke with Ruthie from her home in Coachella, California, and here's our conversation. Agave Blues, I'm talking today with its author, Ruthie Marlinet. Ruthie, welcome to talk to us about your book today. Thank you, Suzanne. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really looking forward to our our chat. Talk to us a little bit about tequila and about agave, because so much of the setting of this book and and what happens in the narrative is all around um, this kind of magical qualities of agave and of tequila. So talk a little bit about that. Set us up that way. First of all, I set out to learn more about tequila. Tequila cannot legally be called tequila unless it comes from the region of Tequila, Mexico, which is in Guadalajara, Jalisco area, the state of Jalisco, and then some other outlying areas. So um, tequila is from the, the blue agave plant and it has so many wonderful qualities to it and, and it is used for medicinal purposes as well. It used, it's used for paper and and um, sewing and mats and clothing. I also set out to do some research on the medicinal qualities of it. They're, they're using it for cancer research um, at the University of Guadalajara. So my research took me there as well. So tequila is a wonderful spirit. It's a wonderful product that comes out of Jalisco, um, the region where my character is from. And it's a beautiful plant too. And when we see her or she's often in the book described um, as in these 
kind of fields of agave or gazing at them. And a lot of magical things happen, but we'll get there in a minute. Why don't we set up the story a little bit? We've mentioned Maya. She's the main character. And as the story opens, she's settling a case for a man whose significance will is revealed to us later on. Um, but she gets the news of the death of her father in Mexico. And, and she gets that news from her daughter, who is uh, Lily, who has been sent away under some circumstances and um, is studying in Guadalajara. So why don't you set up that story and that kind of initial impression we have of of Maya? Because she's suffering from Crohn's disease, and and that kind of is, is a big distraction for her. So set up the story for us. Thank you. Yes, uh, Maya is going through all kinds of things. Um, uh, not only the Crohn's, but the, the troubling relationship. Um, her daughter's been sent off to study in, in Guadalajara. It's, it's the best thing that, best place she could send her. Working as a trial attorney has its stresses as well. So everything is just mounting on her, on her shoulders. So she gets the call in the middle of all this when she has no room to breathe and she's got to go and um, identify her father's body. Uh, her daughter is down there and has discovered that her grandfather, Lily's grandfather, has died and they need somebody to come down and take care of things. Well, that's all Maya's ever done is take care of things and put fires out all over the place. That's why she's a good attorney. And she's also in a relationship with somebody who is not good for her. And that becomes kind of a side distraction for her as well. And I think we should say that her family came to the United States. It sounds like they had a very, within her family, a very fluid sort of border situation with going north and, and coming back. And then finally, her mother takes her and her brother up north for good. And Maya works real hard to uh, assimilate and to remove any indications of her past life. But the blood calls you back. That is something, a phrase that is said several times in the book, the blood calls you back. And her family and she are kind of filled with secrets and betrayals that run across generations. And so talk a little bit about that, about her family in particular. But I think that we could say many families suffer from these same kind of things. La sangre atrae, the blood calls you back. It's universal. You can run away from your problems or your uh, background, um, your culture. You um, come here and try and assimilate but it's always going to follow you, you around and um, you can put up a wall to, to never look back there again, but it's going to, it's going to creep through somehow. And um, for Maya, the only way finally to, to deal with these issues is to face, to face the monster, I guess, or, you know, to, and go face these demons. Um, not that she's sought to do that. She kept running away, but they came after her. They, um, they called her back. And she could no longer uh, deny the call. You know, she had her daughter calling her, her relatives calling her, the spirits calling her. Um, and then on the other side, she had, you know, her 
fiance pushing her away, a lot of things pushing her back as well. And she has this affliction of um, Crohn's disease. So there's almost this physical manifestation of her own discomfort with who she is. And her dad, who, who died, that relationship holds a lot of mysteries for us. And it turns out he's uh, maybe a richer character than even she gives him credit for. Right. Right. And she would never have known that had she not gone, gone back and, um, and let herself be open and walk the fields and listen, listen, ask questions and listen to what the ancestors have to tell her. And she experiences her ancestors in almost this alternative reality that is this blue mist where she sees things and experiences things that she doesn't quite understand um, who these people are or are they her or, or, you know, so talk about how you created all that. The blue mist, and again, she's got this illness and she's stressed out and she, she's a smart woman. She knows that she's probably having some sort of panic attacks or um, she hasn't had enough sleep. So perhaps this is just her imagination. She's got a, a big imagination. So she kind of has fun with it, um, thinking this isn't real. I'll just go along with it. And in so doing, she's discovering some things um, that are perhaps real and true. Her, she's discovering her truth and the truth of her ancestors. So it's they've come to her on this blue mist. And in the paintings that she does, she uses the color blue a lot. So she, uh, as a child, uh, before leaving Mexico, painted. And her cousin, Gabriel, paints. And she encounters him frequently and um, he encourages her to paint and she begins painting again then she has another cousin Antonio that he runs the the business the the tequila business and she has a more contentious relationship with him but it took Maya some time to really understand what was going on with these people, Gabriel and and Antonio. And I, I wonder if you can, you know, without giving too much of the plot away that the reader always likes to discover, but can you talk a little bit about this kind of relationships with her cousins? Sure. So Antonio and Gabriel were her cousins, and when she, as a child, she when she lived down there, she would quite often play, you know, be a child with with Gabriel, um, wandering the fields, you know, sticking their hands in the the hornos where the the maguey, the tequila was cooking, and then running off into the fields and playing and coloring and painting, while the older cousin Antonio was working. He was working the field. He was being responsible. And yet he loved his little brother, Gabriel, and, and, but he envied the, the childhood that his little brother was having. So uh, growing up, 
Maya always saw this mean older cousin marching around and looking angry all the time. And she was afraid of him. She was afraid of him, but intrigued by him because he's um, a handsome little boy, you know, an older cousin, you know, she was intrigued by him. So um, fast forward, they're all grown up and uh, Antonia, the older cousin is still treating her like that little girl. And she's, she's not liking it, she's not having it. So she's um, fighting back, arguing back um, because she's also there to see what she can learn about the business and he doesn't want her in the business. Meanwhile, Gabriel, the artistic cousin is he's still out in the fields <laughs> painting and, and living his life or doing his life um, and having a lot to, to show and teach Maya about what she's given up or what she's lost and how she needs to get back to it. And then her uncle, Don Pio, is also trying to guide her. And he has a sort of wisdom about him but he lets her discover a lot of things kind of on her own. But he's fully aware of these transitions she may be going through. And so can you talk a little about a bit about Don Pio? So yes, Don Pio, everybody needs a Don Pio in their lives. You know, as parents, we try to guide our children and uh, we always sometimes let them make their own mistakes or come to their own truth. Um, so he's letting her traverse the fields and, and make her own discoveries and learn her, her truth. Everybody has their own truth and she needs to find hers. So he's a very gentle guide, very wise person. And in the end, we can see just how wise he is. He says a lot of wise things in the book and something that Maybe he said more than once, I don't know, but the dead are as important as the living. And there's a big scene in the book where there's a big kind of Day of the Dead celebration, and it really surprises her, and it might even be a turning point for her. Right. And in, in our culture and in Mexico, and cultures all around the world, too, they celebrate the dead. And... Um, you know, they set up the altars and bring their favorite foods to these the, the Day of the Dead festivities. And they sit amongst their ancestors and listen and celebrate. And, and I, I really love that. I think that's something that started my journey on this, uh, writing this story. You know, I, I'm, I'm looking for answers and calling upon my own parents who've passed and my grandparents um, as if they're here in the room. And um, I want to believe that their spirit is, is still here. So um, well, Maya is, you know, she's based on me and uh, all the female characters in my life, um, the strong women in my life. So she's, uh, she's an amalgamation of all, all of those uh, female characters. But just the idea of, of asking questions of my ancestors and my relatives, um, I need guide. We all need guidance sometimes to get through this life. It's can, can be difficult. So um, as I'm calling upon them, um, I'm coming up with a story and I'm being given this story um, as a way of healing. There was, especially as you describe it in, in the book and during that kind of celebration of the day of the dead, she was discovering that 
all these other people looked at it as a continuum almost of life, that the dead were as much part of life as as the living, and that certainly turned out to be the case for her. I guess I want to ask you, when you're writing a book like this, and it includes a lot of Spanish phrases and, and culture, and I, I wonder how you approach peppering in the language and and how you meter that out and determine what's the right balance there. Well, at the beginning, of course, she's Maya is is moving away from her language, from her culture. So there wasn't too much of it other than when she's being spoken to by her client, I guess. And he's he's reminding her that she needs to get back to her roots, la sangre trae. And so little by little, I'm, I'm peppering in or weaving in some Spanish. And by the time she's in Mexico, it's she's speaking fluidly again. She's thinking in Spanish. She's dreaming in Spanish. She's having these visions in Spanish. Uh, of course, though, it's being written in English, but we, we know it's Spanish. And I, I just wanted to make sure that I wrote it in context, not too much Spanish. or uh, I didn't want to lose the reader. But I, I hope, hopefully I pulled it off by just putting in enough and yeah, at the beginning, she's she's moved away from it. She comes from a generation where the children were told, told not to speak Spanish, to bury their Spanish. And in so doing, you 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 lose your culture, and you lose you lose a lot of the things that she gets to rediscover when she goes back into the field. And so, it would be my hope that those of us who pushed away our language um, get it back, go find it. It's, it's, it's very important. Were you in a similar situation? Were you born in Mexico? I was not. I'm half Mexican. My mother is fa- my mother's family is from the, this region. She's Mex- she was Mexican, or she's still Mexican. I have to believe that her spirit is still here. And then, but my father was white, so I'm half. And uh, the interesting thing was that growing up in my household, we spoke Spanish because my father insisted that we do. He loved the culture, he embraced the culture. So a lot of my family that were 100% didn't speak Spanish in their homes. I had a cousin that was from Mexico and she lived a few doors down from me. We started kindergarten together. She didn't know any English at all. So I was her interpreter in kindergarten and, and I was constantly having to take notes home that Ruthie is not letting Florita learn English because I kept trying to help her. Unfortunately, little Florita had to stay back in kindergarten and um, she eventually learned English, but she learned it the hard way. We even had a fire drill once in kindergarten and she didn't know what it was. The bells were going off and I was telling her, it's a fire drill, we need to run. And my memory is that I had to leave her in the classroom during the fire drill. So I could be wrong, but that's my... That's my imagination. I remember getting in trouble for it, so. And really just trying to be a little interpreter there. Right, a little helper. In the book, um, Maya's daughter Lily learns Spanish in class. She studies it intentionally, doesn't learn it in a native sense. Right. But it seems to me as the writer, it is a kind of delicate balance with you know, inflecting the writing with the actual language, and as you say, not losing the reader who may not know Spanish. Right. So just just enough to get the flavor, 
I got the flavor of a little tequila. You were talking about it so much in the book that I, I, I felt like I think I need to get some tequila just to um, kind of as the uh, uh, ambiance for reading it. So thanks for that gift on that. Um, Ruthie, what else do you want to tell us about the book or about your, your life as a writer? As a writer, this particular book has its roots long time ago, 15, 20 years ago, no, 2006 or so. It started out as a, uh, I got the idea and, and turned it into a screenplay. You know, it had a first act, second act, third act, um, but it didn't have all the sensory detail. Um, I thought I could get that later or just make it up. But um, so that was another reason I got called back. I needed to flesh this screenplay out. So it started out as a screenplay and eventually I had so much fun turning it into a novel. So like I say, that was many years ago. In the meanwhile, I've, I've written other, a couple of other books and I'm, I'm writing workshopping and some poetry workshops and some short story. Uh, so constantly writing, even if it's stringing a couple of words together, that's what gives me satisfaction. Who are some of your influences um, about the culture and literature in general, maybe? Well, literature in general, of course, all of the um, great magic realists, um, Paulo Coelho, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Isabel Allende. Um, but, But also in doing this research, I kept going back to my books by Don Miguel Ruiz and the, the Four Agreements, The Mastery of Love. And I think I created my character, Don Pio, based on, on some of these books. Um, also, I've quoted a couple of my favorite artists um, in the book. I quote Gladys Tabor, who says, a garden is evidence of faith. It links us with the misty figures of the past who also planted and were nourished by the fruits of their planting. I have another quote by Frida Kahlo. Feet, what do I need you for when I have wings to fly? That is very significant with, I think, with my character, Gabriel. And then, of course, a quote by Don Miguel Ruiz. Every human is an artist. The dream of your life is to make beautiful art. So those were artists that influenced me and, and um, came to me while, as I was writing this book. And you mentioned doing research. Did part of your research include going down to that part of Mexico? Oh, absolutely. I went several times. As I mentioned, I had a daughter. Uh, I have two daughters, actually. One was a reporter for the Guadalajara reporter. One was doing some immersion studies in the part of Mexico called Cholula. So I was visiting them often then taking these little side trips to the tequila country. And I have, a, um, I rediscovered or got reacquainted with some relatives down there. And these are the characters that are in my book. So I, I, I indeed traversed the fields, I taste tested, I worked in the distillery, um, I bottled, I boxed, I labeled. So I did the work and I taste tested a lot. Well, that's interesting that, <laughs> that um, you, not that you taste tested a lot, but well, as I said, I felt encouraged to, to, 
to, and I felt like I needed to buy a good tequila because. Right. Only the good um, top shelf. Yes, yes, yes. And just the uh, vision of rows of, of these plants seems, I could picture that in my mind. The, the, uh, so you were in your own kind of blue mist while down there. I was. I was, I was walking around the fields, the rows of agave, and just saying, okay, teach me whatever you need to teach me. So this is, I'd already had, the, like I said before, I'd already had the story, the screenplay written, the outline, but I didn't have all the, all these sensory details. You know, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine everything. I had to go down there. I was called back. I was called you, back. You were called back. And while I didn't inherit a tequila farm, I came away with a, a story. And, and that's priceless to me. And do you paint? I don't paint. I don't. I wish I did. I don't have the patience for it. But I, my sister, Carla, is, a, is an artist, a beautiful artist. And I did sit with her and have her show me the brush strokes, you know, the, the, under, the underlying colors. And, and so I did sit with her in her class where she teaches um, children. <laughs> and I, I painted an apple. It has, it's got all the shadows. <laughs> so no, I, I, I wish I could paint. Well, you describe it well in the book and it's uh, very colorful very colorful all the way around. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that novel is Agave Blues, and I'm talking with its author, Ruthie Marlinet. Ruthie, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Suzanne. It was a pleasure. My conversation with Ruthie Marlinet, and her book is Agave Blues. I am Suzanne Lang, and you are listening to A Novel Idea. We'll take a short break before talking with Meredith Hall on her book, Beneficence, a moving, heartbreaking, and ultimately redemptive story of love and loss and love. Stay with us. Este amor apasionado anda todo alborotado por volver voy camino a la I'm Suzanne Lang, and you're listening to A Novel Idea. Meredith Hall has taught memoir writing for many years, and her first book was the critically acclaimed and best-selling memoir, Without a Map. She has published Essays, and Beneficence is her first novel. It is set in rural Maine and reveals an idyllic life for a farming family that is shattered by a sudden and tragic loss. For years, they live in a well of grief and guilt, and this story is of how they patiently find their way through it. Hall's writing is compelling, and she creates a controlled pace that is at once calm, 
and taught. Let's listen to our conversation. Meredith Hall, first of all, welcome to talk to us today about this lovely book. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm very honored to be here. Beneficence. It is a story of family and home and loss and love. And before we get into talking about the characters and the structure of the book, which are things I want to talk about with you, why don't you set up the story for us? Beneficence is the story of a family on a dairy farm in Maine, in rural Maine. It opens in 1947 and follows this family through until 1965. There is a mother, Doris, father and husband, Top, and three children, Sonny, Dodie, a girl in the middle, and Bastin, a little boy. And we watch this family with their very, very hard work bearing incredible benefit for the family on this farm. They work hard. It's a very beautiful place. The land is beautiful. The farm has been in Tup's family for five generations. And he and his new wife, Doris, return to the farm and bring it back to great productivity. And the farm is a place that binds them, the work of the farm and the beauty of the farm. Uh, They are a family that is very healthy, very close there, very close to each other. They share a great deal of love and they like each other. They enjoy each other. And then a tragedy hits this family. And writing the book, I was very interested in watching how this family might make its way through that kind of tragedy. I believed in the love that they feel for each other and their their sense of being bound both to the land and to each other. And I wanted to see what would come of that close binding in the face of such a tragedy. I think you have summed it up well that it definitely is a book that is steeped in the nurturing quality of the place that they called home and that uh, they trusted that But this tragedy then happens and they really all are left to deal with it in their own ways, which is the the story of the book. And um, you mentioned the Doris, the the mother, and Dodie is the middle daughter, and Tup, the father. And the story is told through these three people, though there are two other sons and there are some other characters, significant characters. So I wondered, how did you settle on, on that kind of structure? Well, you know, this is my first novel. I taught nonfiction, memoir writing, uh, in an undergraduate and graduate program for many, many years and wrote essays. I considered myself an essayist, but after my memoir came out, the memoir had quite a public life and it um, brought me into conversation, not only about the writing and the book itself, but about my life for several years after the book came out. And um, I made the decision that I was going to move away from nonfiction and try fiction, try a novel. When I first conceptualized this book, I imagined that Top, it was going to be Top's story. Top misbehaves in this story. He makes decisions in the face of this tragedy that do not serve the needs of the people that he loves. 
And I initially was very interested in uh, watching a man make decisions that are self-serving. And I, I wondered how he explained these decisions. How did he live with himself? What did he think when he went to bed at night and was awake in the dark of the night? What would he think about uh, the decisions he was making? And so I went into it believing that this was going to be Tup's story, uh, told third person. And um, really, I, I considered Tup something of a bad guy. He was going to be the bad guy in my story. Instead, when I sat down to write the very first page, I was astonished that there was a woman named Doris that I had not imagined. I had no, I hadn't even thought yet about who his wife might be or what her name might be. And um, I was writing Doris in Doris's voice and she opened the book. And what astonished me was how much she likes and loves Tom. How he's her closest friend, she trusts him. They have a lot of fun, they're very flirtatious. They have a very intimate relationship with each other. They share great intimacy. And um, she started telling a story that was nothing like the story I had imagined. So I handed it over to her and she wrote the first chapter and uh, introduced by name their children uh, in that chapter. And then completely unplanned, that middle child, Dodie, the girl in the family, started speaking. She started writing her own voice. And I loved her. I fell completely in love with this child. I didn't know a thing about her. And I let her, uh, let her just um, introduce me uh, to her. It was a pretty wonderful process. And then finally, I decided that uh, top the father and husband would uh, have that third voice. I decided against the boys having voices. I felt that three was plenty for the reader to contend with. And I have to say, because this is my first novel, I went into that structure very naively. I've since been told by much more experienced writers that it is uh, in and of itself, that structure is a very challenging structure. I didn't find it to be challenging at all. It was a very natural voice for me. I had written my memoir, of course, in first person, and these first person present tense voices were very familiar and comfortable for me. So I, the, the structure of the book was not planned. It just, just seemed to happen. Interesting that it's a case where the characters were were telling you what to do. But there's another structure laid onto the book aside from these characters each having their individual voices is that for us, for the reader, there are these kind of temporal demarcations of before, during, and after, which then actually, I think, creates a little bit of tension and, and um, expectation on the part of the reader. So I was wondering about that, too, if, if because the book has a very uh, steady pacing to it, but, but that structure of the characters talking and, and the time really does create a, a sense in the reader of um, pulling us through this and kind of anticipating what is going to happen. And, and I guess I wondered about that temporal structure that you also used. Those observations are wonderful. Um, 
I, again, I don't think I made a clear decision about uh, how to structure the book around time. I think I gave that more conscious thought than I did the voices, those individual voices. I knew that there was going to be uh, a family uh, that lived in a kind of um, naive, it was, it was for them almost an Eden. It was, uh, it was a, a time before trouble. And I wanted to portray that fully and allow me and the reader to explore and recognize that this was a time of enormous happiness, a, real, a time of grace in their lives. And then this thing happened and I knew this thing was going to happen. I went into the book knowing there was going to be this event. And um, that during time is um, the language changes. I can see now it was not planned, but reading back through it, I can see that the pacing of the language and um, even the vocabulary changes as the family confronts this, this terrible crisis, this tragedy. And then I really wrote my way into that long spooling out process of how a family might experience tremendous loss and grief. And what the process is of uh, these parents trying to hold themselves accountable to, to each other and to their children and failing at doing that, um, really in the end, uh, betraying each other and betraying their children, betraying everything they believed their family could face. They didn't face it well. And um, I knew that I needed time to do that. So now I'm looking at quite a long period of time, 1947 to 1965, when the book closes. And I did make a clear decision that I didn't want the reader, I wanted it to be chronological, and I did not want the reader to ever feel lost in time. And so there were very clear markings uh, in the book. This is uh, 1949, this is 1951, this is 1954. And always the voices are in the same cycle. Dora speaks first and then Dodie and then Tup. So that rhythm moves through those years. I also, these people are great storytellers. Uh, I love telling stories I've discovered, <laughs> and um, they are storytellers, all of them. And so they themselves move between present tense and then it back into uh, past tense as they relate memory. They're moving back through memory. So there's a lot of movement between the present and the past also. But I, I really felt that the reader deserved and might need uh, those demarcations of time on the page. And there's a degree of reflection as well. And I think of the mother Doris, who is in her sorrow and suffering. She knows that she is neglecting others and neglecting herself and who she is, but she can't or won't make other decisions. And to watch her know that uh, just seems to add to her, her suffering all the more. Yes, and it's interesting. That's that's a very interesting comment, Suzanne. It's interesting that Doris believes from the beginning. She tells us in those very first pages, we can never know what is coming. And she has she carries a sense that they are an island. They quite literally are an island on their land. The road comes out of town a long distance, a dirt road that winds out through the 
the rural area of the town and comes past their farm, but ends simply in the fields of another farmer. They see no other houses. They are a long way from anywhere. And they choose that. That is their place, separate from the world. And Doris carries a deep feeling that in that place, they are safe. Outside that place, the world carries some sort of danger she can't name. She's apprehensive that out there, there is something that threatens her and her happiness and peace. And um, once this event happens, this terrible loss hits her. Doris, now we would say that Doris falls into a prolonged depression, although I don't think there was the language for that at the time. And there was not even a concept of um, a kind of ill health emotionally. And she only knows that she has lost herself. There's actually a a wonderful main expression uh, when somebody is in terrible trouble, especially after a terrible grief. People might say about a man or a woman, he or she went into herself. And um, that was that really guided my writing of Doris's experience of grief, uh, that she really went into herself. She lost herself inside uh, that grief. She says at one point, farther on in the book, I cared altogether too much about my own grief and didn't pay enough attention to the grief of my children and my husband. But she is caught by it and cannot find her way out. I. I found it very challenging to write Doris's response. Um, I'm a mother and um, I actually lost a child to adoption when I was 16. And I, I know now, although I did not know it at the time that I wrote this book, that I was writing from my own experience of a mother's deep loss. And um, I do not experience depression. I'm not familiar with it. And so I had to simply follow my instincts as a mother. What does this feel like? And in fact, Doris didn't want her children to, say, have friends uh, outside or have them. She was very cautious about even having friends come over and visit as as their kids were, you know, growing up and going to school. Yes. That's, that's right. And Tuck, interestingly, uh, does not have that feeling. He right. feels safer in the world. And maybe that's the difference between uh, male and female. He feels that he is capable of protecting them from the world. That's not his fear. But Tuck carries a deep sense that there is something in him that he cannot name that is going to fail in love. And in fact, he does. And his struggle is between his very uh, deep sense. He tells us, he really beseeches us again and again to understand, I am a good man. I am a good man. And yet he recognizes his terrible failure, the, the decisions that do great harm in many directions. And he recognizes that. So Top feels that the danger actually is inside him not out in the world. And uh, he feels helpless in naming that potential harm or understanding it or in any way controlling it or overcoming it. He, he does become uh, vulnerable to it. Yes. And for our readers and listeners, we're leaving out a lot of details because that's part of 
the the drama and and the emotion of this book is the unfolding of them. So you'll have to discover um, those details yourself while reading the book. In getting to Tup, who is the father, the living patriarch of the center family, there's an episode in the book where he the family goes on a winter excursion to do sledding and skating and and he skates off and keeps skating off on his own and the quality that you were just talking about in in him I wonder if you you could maybe drill in on this episode where he's skating on on this river feeling the the freedom but when he comes back, his his family is like sitting there, huh? Where have you been? And, and so, can you talk about that little episode? I wonder. Yes, it's a you know, it's one of their family outings. It's a spontaneous thing, and they're they're all excited. They get in the truck and they arrive. Top tells us how wonderful it is to skate on a on a river uh, rather than a pond or a lake because it takes you somewhere. It's a road somewhere. And he plays with the family for a short period of time and then finds himself skating off down that road, down that river. And um, he expresses great joy in the release that he feels, uh, the sound of his skates and nothing else. That's the only sound. Nobody else skates, no children laughing and shrieking, uh, no wife flirting and, and laughing with him, um, just his skates. And off he goes, and he goes farther and farther and farther away. And he's untroubled during that voyage out, that voyage off on his own, until he suddenly realizes that the light is changing with the afternoon. And he suddenly feels a, a sense of dread and of guilt. And he feels very resentful that he's feeling those things. He, he minds that he's feeling such guilt and that he's being called back to obligation. And he goes back and you're right, the family is cold. Uh, the fire that they had started um, has gone out. Uh, Doris doesn't have the keys to the truck. They can't start it and get warm. And Tup arrives and he is um, chastened, but also uh, a little bit resentful that he's been called back to this. And yet the truth is, the absolute accompanying truth is that these people are all there is in his life. That these people are all he cares about in his life, these people and his farm. So this is a complex emotion for, for Top. Um, he says that they forgive him and they do go on many skating outings, but they never return to that particular place. It's not a good memory for them. Um, right. I think that this is a place where Top senses in himself an inability or an unwillingness to forego that one last piece of himself. He just cannot turn away from it. That scene to me is so memorable um, as the story progresses and, and his actions take place. I, I kept going back to, to that particular scene in, in my mind. There's a couple of things that are said. Happiness requires courage and a willingness to love, a willingness to forgive, a willingness to believe in some sort of goodness. It requires that 
each accept what has been lost and offer ourselves to what we have now. That is something Dodi says. Earlier in the book, it is said every family makes up its own rules. And importantly, there is no map. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about these kind of realizations apropos to the story and apropos to to life, really. Yes, it's, um, I watched this family experience great loss in the only way each of us does, which is this is the singular event. This happened to me. This is not something I share with others. It's not something I have in common with others. This is mine. And I'm lost. I don't know how to do this. My, my memoir is uh, titled Without a Map. This idea that none of us comes equipped with a map, with any understanding of how we're going to make our way through these kinds of uh, large events. And for this family, you know, this isn't loss that comes in from old age or uh, long illness. This is a very sudden loss. And they really are thrown into um, managing and finding their way through with no guideposts. There are no signposts for them. I think that what binds this family right from the beginning is that they do hold faith in goodness, in, in each other's goodness. They believe in each other's goodness, and children and, and parents. And they absolutely believe in love. They understand from the beginning. Uh, Doris tells us in the very early pages, Pop and I are smart enough to know that we are grateful for this life. We know what we have, and we are grateful for it. Um, and they, they, they never lose their memory of that trust in each other and in love and in goodness. I believe that this book is titled Beneficence. This is, I, for me, this is a story about the ways in which love and goodness bind us. They, they rescue us. They are what we rely on when we have very little else to, um, to sustain us. And this family um, moves slowly and with, with tremendous um, struggle back toward that goodness and that, that understanding of and acceptance of the fact that love is what they have. The farm figures in this very largely too. The work of the farm is a rhythm that no matter what, that work has to be done, no matter how they're, um, where they are in their struggle, that every day, every morning, they need to get up and do their work. Um, Dodi is called upon to do a, a very unfair share of work because Doris is not able to do her own chores, do her own work. And Dodi grows up very fast and is sort of hauled into the necessity of that work. But the farm won't wait. The farm is still there every day. And ultimately, the farm is one of the very large forces that... Um, really carries this family back to each other uh, and, and their memory of um, their deep understanding of goodness and of love. The title of the book is Beneficence. And the first time 
that I believe it's the first time that we hear that term in the book. It is spoken by Dodie, the the middle daughter. And um, she says, looking out at our land, I felt for the first time in a very long time the simple beauty of our land, its beneficence. And then I, I think Tup may mention it as well later in the book, um, Yes, he says, we make ourselves ready to participate in beneficence and goodness. There is no peace outside that. And and that got my attention, your use of, of vocabulary. Um, every time, you, you, you earlier in this conversa- conversation mentioned grace, and I felt that that was a a thread running through the stories and characters, and even one character is named Grace. And so I, I would love you to talk a little bit about Grace. I think that this entire story is founded on my own um, my own awareness of this uh, this this thing that we all. Uh, we don't just have access to it. It is us, I believe, this state of grace and this recognition of a need for beneficence. We need beneficence um, to exist within us, and we also need to experience it and recognize it in the world. And um, I think that my faith in that grace is... Uh, a very, very deep faith, and it guided this writing. I don't think I was nearly as aware of it before I wrote this book as I am now. The beauty of the land, the power of the land, is something that I consciously feel. Maine is a very beautiful place, and I recognize that the wild animals that live on this farm, that visit the farm, that are around, um, their sounds, their night sounds, the, the, the just incredibly beautiful, gentle nature of this land um, figured very largely for me. And I recognized that as I went into the writing. But I think that it was a discovery for me to understand about myself that I, I understand loss and grief and sorrow in terms of uh, this larger thing that we have access to, this um, this grace that we carry, it's not just, it's not outside us, it is inside us. And uh, it's there for us if we, if and when we turn to it. And I, I think that that figured very largely for these people. I wrote that story. They're, they're making decisions finally uh, after great sorrow uh, to turn toward that grace. You know, this is a family that struggles with um, kind of elemental uh, Protestant Christian beliefs. Uh, Every rural family, virtually every rural family around me growing up attended church. Every of the families went to church on Sunday. And this family did that and uh, carried the feelings, you know, they believe in uh, God and God's goodness, um, much less uh, interesting to them or of concern to them is any harshness on the part of God or judgment. They live inside a belief that God is benevolent and uh, loving and forgiving. 
And those beliefs, especially for Doris and Dodi, are deeply shaken by this event. And um, Top is the one who actually calls them back again and again, particularly Dodi, calling her back to that elemental faith. That is never really resolved for Dodi and Doris in this story. That, that, that faith was shaken. And, um, but what, what was not shaken was their faith in this very, uh, almost a primal experience of grace and goodness, this beneficence that they understand. Well, we could continue talking about this book for a, a long time. There's so much to discover here. I'm talking with Meredith Hall, and the book is Beneficence, and I uh, want to encourage our readers and listeners to pick this book up. It really has a lot to offer. Meredith, is there anything you'd like to leave us with? That was a wonderful conversation, Suzanne. Um, I'm not sure there is. I think that the things that I would like to say about this book, um, we, t we talked about those things. So it's been a wonderful conversation. Well, I've enjoyed it too. And thank you so much. Thank you, Suzanne. I'm grateful to you for the invitation. My conversation with Meredith Hall. The book is Beneficence. Meredith makes her home most of the time in Northern California. And I spoke with her from her home in Maine. Earlier, we heard from Ruthie Marlinet with her novel, Agave Blues. I thank Meredith and Ruthie for spending time with me. It's such a privilege to talk with these expressive people, and I thank you for listening. I have production assistance from James Morey and Mark Prell. Hear past shows and subscribe to our podcast at krcb.org. Follow the podcast links. You can download the KRCB app for your Apple or Android device and listen that way, even while in the garden. We are a production of Lit Radio and Northern California Public Media. It's a novel idea. <laughs>